Ephesians chapter 1. And let's begin at the very beginning. Verse 1 of Ephesians 1. This is the word of God. Let us hear it. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the Beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory, who first trusted in Christ, in whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. We'll end our reading in verse 16. We know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word. I would add just one verse to this scripture reading, which is in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. In verse 31, where Paul writes, Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. Do all to the glory of God. And the thing I love and that I would emphasize before you from that portion in Ephesians 1 that we just read is that salvation has as its ultimate design and purpose and intention the praise of the glory of God's grace. If you still have Ephesians 1 opened, look at verse 6. To the praise of the glory of his grace, jump down to verse 12, that we should be to the praise of his glory. 
And again in verse 14, unto the praise of his glory. There is a purpose in salvation that takes us to the praise of the glory of his grace. The, the, these verses and the ones in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 31 really can go a long way in shaping your world view. If you want your world view to be in keeping with God's world view. What God has done, even in our salvation, he has done with an aim and an intention that goes beyond us. It is to the praise of his glory. We're tempted to forget that. And I recognize that it's an easy thing to forget, especially when you consider how much we benefit from salvation. After all, we're the sinners that have been saved. Our sins have been forgiven, washed away in the blood. We've been adopted into the family of God. We've been given assurance of a home in heaven. We have been the recipients of nothing short of supernatural power when the Spirit of God wrought upon our hearts in the power of the gospel. So there is so much focus in salvation that comes to us. We are the beneficiaries. We are the recipients. We are, in a sense, the, the focal point then of salvation. And if we're not careful, it becomes easy to think, well, everything is all about me. But it's not. It is true that we benefit greatly, okay? No denying that. But there is an aim that goes above and beyond us when it comes to God's salvation, and that is the praise of his glory. He did this for his glory, his own glory, the praise of the glory of his grace. And that brings me then to our first catechism, our shorter catechism question and answer. I hope that most of you know this. I won't test you now by making you recite it for me. Not a difficult one. Usually the first one is the one that we do get. And remember, that's the case with me. Ask me what the last one is, and you'll probably trip me up. But ask me what the first one is, and usually I can recite it. What is the chief end of man? Or in other words, what is your chief purpose in life? Why do you even exist? Why did God create you? Why has Christ redeemed you? What is your chief end? The chief end of man to which the answer comes, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And I'm very fond of pressing this, especially upon young people and upon children, because if indeed this is the case, and I think I've already borne it out from the scriptures in 1 Corinthians 10 and in Ephesians 1, so I think we're dealing with a scriptural answer here, 
and young people and children, if you are able to affirm the truth of this, that your chief end, or in other words, the reason for your existence is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, then you are so far ahead in life than so many people that are older than you, who may be uh, wiser or more intelligent than you. There are people in this world that have gone to college, who have obtained one degree after another. I think of a, a college professor that, that we uh, touched upon when I taught the class in Worldview for a few of our young people years ago. And we had occasion to deal with a Harvard professor who had earned six PhDs. And I remember pointing out to the class, that kind of deserves our respect, I suppose. If you've earned a PhD, uh, you have applied yourself to great academic rigor. And to have earned one in an Ivy League school, I suppose, is all the more impressive. And to earn six of them from that Ivy League school is practically uh, beyond what we can comprehend. Unfortunately, I don't feel that this professor even knew what his chief end was for which he was created. Uh, his chief end was to be found uh, in self-reliance and I suppose on his own educational achievements. No man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And I might add, I think there is a connection between the two parts of the answer that the way to glorify God is to enjoy him forever. The two are connected. I don't know that you can glorify God if you're not enjoying God. I don't know that it brings glory to God uh, if, as a Christian, uh, you are dominated by a gloom and doom mentality and that you drag yourself through the day all downcast about all that's wrong in the world. Oh, there's plenty that is wrong in the world, to be sure, but our God is above this world. And as Christ himself said, he has conquered this world. And he is governing it. And it will be his cause that prevails in the end. So man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Thomas Watson gives extensive treatment to the answer to that question. I'm not going to begin to... Uh, cover everything that he does. I think there's actually a great deal of overlap, and I think that was probably a tendency uh, with some of the Puritans, that they, they draw such fine lines of distinction that in our day and age, we don't even know how to make those distinctions. But let me at least highlight some of the things that come from Thomas Watson's treatment of the question. Okay, Two ends of life that are specified, glorifying God, enjoying God, the glorifying of God, that God in all things may be glorified, 1 Peter 4 and verse 2. The glory of God is as a silver thread which must run through all our actions, whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. This is our aim. We don't live unto ourselves. 
I remember, I don't think it was this verse, but it was a verse similar to it. I think it was a verse actually from the book of Colossians that when I worked in the printing industry, I printed it out uh, as large as I could make it fit uh, on an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper. And I taped it to the wall in front of me. And it was a reminder that I labor for the glory of God. I needed to remind myself of that, especially uh, when things became unpleasant in the workplace, when you get taken up in all the politics and how unfair it is that somebody gets paid more than I do, etc., etc. I'm sure you're familiar with that. And I had to preach to myself constantly. Uh, I'm not here to make as much money as I can make. I'm not here to climb the ladder as high as I can go. Oh, if the Lord sees fit to bless me with more money, that's fine. I'm certainly not going to refuse it. And in fact, I'll thank him for it. But I recognize that that's not my primary purpose for working here. I work here for his glory, which means then that I'm going to do the best I can in the jobs that are assigned to me uh, in order to bring glory to his name. Okay? Now, the question that naturally arises then, what are we talking about when we say bring glory to God's name? How can we glorify one who is already altogether glorious? Can we add to his glory somehow? The answer, of course, is no. But we can declare his glory. We glorify him in a declarative sense by our words, by our worship, by our action. Okay? There is a twofold glory, Thomas Watson says. The glory that God has in himself, his intrinsic glory, Glory is essential to the Godhead as light is to the sun. He is called the God of glory, Acts 7, verse 2. Glory is the sparkling of the deity. It is so co-natural to the Godhead that God cannot be God without it. The creature's honor is not essential to his being. That's something to keep in mind, too, when we have a right worldview. Um, God would not be the poorer without us. God did not embark upon a plan of salvation in order to fill a void in his own heart. No, and this is where the doctrine of the Trinity becomes so important. God the Father has always had God the Son. And the Son has always had the Father. And they both have always had the Spirit. And there has always been uh, a, a perfect fulfillment um, of God within himself. He is altogether glorious. He is self-sufficient, which means that uh, he was not trying to fill a void in his heart by creating man or by saving man from man's fallen condition. This is, again, as Paul writes to the Ephesians, to the praise of the glory of his grace and for his good pleasure, okay? So God has his intrinsic glory. What is it then to glorify God? 
And Thomas Watson suggests four things, and I'm just going to read them to you. I won't go into any detail uh, about them. One, uh, glorifying God consists in appreciation. We appreciate God. Thou, Lord, art most high forevermore, Psalm 92 and verse 8. I wonder this afternoon, do you appreciate God? That is a part of glorifying him. I appreciate uh, the greatness of who he is. Boy, I, I tell you, one of the benefits that I gained to teaching this course in theology proper was uh, the, the time uh, that I got to spend uh, in the, those portions of Scripture and in those portions of theology that speak of how far beyond our comprehension God truly is. The infinite, he is infinite. We are finite, and that creates such a gulf between us that there are those that mistakenly think that uh, it is impossible for God to reveal himself to his creation because the gulf between God and man is just too great. In a sense, that's understandable. And then a sense that's true because he is infinite and we are not. But it does not take into account that God can, if he so chooses, can condescend so low as to reveal himself to man, which he has done in his word through the extensive use. I'm going to give you a big word now. You, you probably heard of it anthropomorphism okay anthropomorphism is uh, a literary device you could say by which we ascribe um, parts of man anthropos man uh, we ascribe properties that exist in us to god so that in scripture you read of god having an outstretched arm Delivering Israel with a strong hand and a stretched out arm. God doesn't have a hand and an arm. That is anthropomorphism by which he condescends to reveal himself. The point being here that there is a vast difference between us, uh, the finite and the infinite, but once we recognize that God has indeed condescended so low as to reveal himself to us, that should create within our hearts an appreciation for the greatness of the God that we serve. I hope that you are able to think high thoughts of God. We need not ever fear overestimating the greatness of the God we worship and serve, uh, but we uh, should have a constant dread of underestimating his greatness. And that seems to be, unfortunately, a common tendency among men at times. Okay, so appreciation that's the first of four things in which glorifying God consists. Secondly, glorifying God consists in adoration or worship. We glorify God by worshiping him. That's something to keep in mind, you know, when you come to church. Something to keep in mind 
when you think about the purpose that church is supposed to serve. There is a common tendency today to view church as a spiritual hospital, so to speak. I come to church because I'm all beat up and I'm crippled during the week through my exposure to the world, so I come to church to get repaired. Now, I'm not going to deny that that can happen. In fact, I hope it does. But, again, we're not thinking high enough when you think of church only in that restrictive sense. No, our purpose in coming to church, first and foremost, is to worship and adore the God that we know and believe in and serve And you know, strange things happen when you have that perspective right. There are times when you find your spiritual needs met just by keeping that aim in view, that I'm here to worship and adore God. I remember a sermon from Martin Lloyd-Jones coming from one of his messages uh, from the Sermon on the Mount, and this was uh, the beginning portion of the Lord's Prayer. You know how the Lord's Prayer begins. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And Lloyd-Jones made a suggestion that when you go to the Lord using that expression, being filled with something of the meaning of that expression, that he is our Father, which art in heaven, and that we want to hallow or sanctify or adore his name, Lloyd-Jones is of the belief that that becomes the answer of many things that are on your heart in the place of prayer. Very often the answer is found in the simple reminder, God is my Father in heaven, and my task is to hallow his name. So adoration or worship, okay? In close connection with that would be affection, We have appreciation, we have adoration, we have affection. This is part of the glory we give to God who counts himself glorified when he is loved. Deuteronomy 6, 5, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul. We glorify him when we love him. We glorify him by our affection. And it is while we are in worship, while we are uh, singing the hymns to his praise, that we are expressing our affection to him. Keep that in mind when we sing these hymns. This is an activity of worship in which we are showing God our affection. And then the fourth thing, subjection. Okay, we glorify God by our subjection to him. Most gladly do we bow the knee before him and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. I love that text in Philippians that speaks of a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Well, we are able to do that to our salvation, 
If you do it in this life, if you do it before judgment day arrives, then you can make that confession to the saving of your soul that Jesus Christ is Lord and that I willingly submit myself to his lordship. Those who fail to do so in this life will do it eventually before his throne. Unfortunately, it will not be to their salvation if they wait until they are before his judgment throne to make that confession. Either way, the confession will be made that Jesus Christ is Lord. How much better to make it to the saving of your soul than to have to make it to the condemning of your soul on judgment day. So these are the four things in which glorifying God consists. Appreciation, adoration, affection, subjection. Watson next goes into a section as to why we should glorify God. I'll highlight these things quickly because he gives us our being. You owe your existence to him. Okay? Because he gives us our being. Because he is God. Therefore, we're obligated to glorify him as God. Because God has made all things for his own glory. Here again, that catechism question, what is our chief end? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. He created us for that purpose. He redeemed us for that purpose. It becomes very fulfilling to our own sense of satisfaction if we are fulfilling the purpose for which we were created and redeemed. Because he made all things for his glory. Three, because the glory of God has intrinsic value and excellence. It transcends the thoughts of men and the tongues of angels. That very term glory is a word that means literally weighty. We're dealing with the weightiness of God, okay? Four, creatures below us and above us bring glory to God. And do we think to sit rent-free, so to speak? Shall everything glorify God but man? It is a pity then that man was ever made. Creatures below us glorify God, the inanimate creatures, and the heavens glorify God. The heavens declare the glory of God. Psalm 19 and verse 1, the curious workmanship of heaven sets forth the glory of its maker. The firmament is beautified and penciled out in blue and azure colors where the power and wisdom of God may be clearly seen. And then 5, we must bring glory to God because all our hopes hang upon him. My hope is in thee, Psalm 39, 7. And my expectation is from him, Psalm 62 and verse 5. I expect a kingdom from him. A child that is good-natured will honor his parent by expecting all he needs from him. All my springs are in thee, Psalm 87 and verse 7. The silver springs of grace and the golden springs of glory are in him. So we have these five reasons why to glorify God. And then we get into a very interesting section in Watson's treatment. In how many ways may we glorify God? 
He lists 17 of them. Okay? Let me, in closing now, let me at least go down the list. It is glorifying God when we aim purely at his glory. That's number one. When we prefer God's glory above all other things, above credit, estate, relations, when the glory of God coming in competition with them, we prefer his glory before them. So we prefer God's glory above all other things. Okay? We aim at God's glory when we are content that God's will should take place, though it may cross ours. Lord, I am content to be a loser if thou be a gainer, to have less health if I have more grace, and thou more glory. Okay? So glorifying to God when we aim at his glory. We glorify God by an ingenuous confession of sin. The thief on the cross had dishonored God in his life, but at his death he brought glory to God by confession of sin. We indeed suffer justly, Luke 23, 41. We glorify God by believing. Abraham was strong in faith, giving glory to God, Romans 4, 20. We glorify God by being tender or sensitive of his glory, being jealous for his glory, I suppose you could say it. God's glory is dear to him as the apple of his eye. And so should we be ever jealous for his glory. Don't get pulled into the discussions that profane his name. And don't be found profaning his name yourself. We glorify God by being jealous for his glory. We glorify God by fruitfulness. Herein is my Father glorified that ye bear much fruit, John 15, 8. We can certainly run a long way with that. We glorify God by being contented in that state in which providence has placed us. Godliness with contentment is great gain. And God is glorified when we're contented. We glorify God by working out our own salvation. And that does not mean we glorify him by working for our salvation, but by putting our salvation to work for his glory. We glorify God by living to God that they which live should not live to themselves, but unto him who died for them. 2 Corinthians 5, 15. We glorify God by walking cheerfully. It brings glory to God when the world sees a Christian has that within him that can make him cheerful in the worst times, that can enable him with the nightingale to sing with a thorn at his breast, so to speak. The people of God have ground for cheerfulness. They are justified and adopted, and this creates inward peace. It makes music within whatever storms are without. So we glorify God by walking cheerfully. I guess that makes the connection, doesn't it? By glorifying God and enjoying Him. We glorify God by standing up for His truths, my, what opportunities are before us nowadays for that? 
to stand for his truth when the whole world is trying to move us into a realm of make-believe. I want to make believe that I'm a different gender than I am. Therefore, you are obligated to pretend along with me. So the world says, and no, we simply stand on the truth that God made them male and female after his image. We glorify God by standing up for his truths. We glorify God by praising him in our worship. That's number 11. We glorify God by being zealous for his name. We glorify God when we have an eye to God in our natural and in our civil actions. We glorify God by laboring to draw others to God, by seeking to convert others and so make them instruments of glorifying God. And I might say here that when you are tender, can I use his expression, tender or sensitive to God's glory, that is also going to govern the way that you engage in evangelism. There are those, you know, I've come across them, perhaps you have too, they will make evangelism an excuse for just about any kind of worldly activity. I'm only trying to lead souls to Christ by sitting at the bar and getting drunk along with the sinner. Uh, no, we've got to be sensitive to God's glory and let that sensitivity govern even our evangelism. We glorify God in a high degree when we suffer for God and the seal of the gospel with our blood. Oh, God, give us grace should that time come. We glorify God when we give God the glory of all that we do. Okay, we glorify God by a holy life. That's the final one that I'll speak on, that I'll mention. That's all 17, I believe, that Thomas Watson gives us. We glorify God by a holy life. And so I hope you know this afternoon the purpose for which you're made, the purpose for which you're redeemed, that we may glorify God and enjoy him forever. Let's close then in prayer. Now we covered 14 pages pretty well, didn't we? Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you that we can have a clear sense of purpose as we live out our lives in this present world. We thank thee, Lord, we understand by thy grace where we came from, what we're doing here, where we're going from here. And we thank thee most of all that we understand the truth of Christ in his life and in his death. O oh Lord, we do pray that thou wilt help us to aim for thy glory in all that we do and say and think. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.